0: Hey there, here's a quick note, this podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives, so don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes.
1: Hi there, welcome to the second half of my interview with Nick Cregan, where he runs a ruler over three fascinating businesses to illustrate what's important when researching and the key lessons and his team took away from these investments. Nick also highlights some of the key traits every investor should develop, giving listeners an insight into his psychological development over time. As always, we find out who has had the most influence on Nick as a person and investor. If you want to listen to the full episode, head to the RAS YouTube channel. Here's part two of the chat. Enjoy. Yeah, there's,
0: there's one business that um, that uh, a lot of investors haven't heard of, but it's one of the one of the most interesting and protected uh, moats that I've seen in my investing career. It's a company called Copart. Um, so a bit of a description of what they do is they, they service the insurance market. So insurance businesses try, trying to get rid of cars that are involved in accidents on a daily basis or more recently, the floods that we've seen here in Lismore and, and Sydney, all those cars need to be disposed of in some way. Um, and then on the other side of that transaction, Copart's selling to um, either Part suppliers. So guys that want, want to sell secondhand mufflers or increasingly into the secondhand used car market. That's especially true when they're selling into less developed countries where their requirements for uh, safety is not quite as high. Now, we're not talking about um, selling cars that are patently broken, but uh, things like um, you've got a Mercedes that's involved in an accident in the US and the uh, passenger side, Uh, airbag deploys you can't sell that car again in in the us but you can sell it into developing countries like in eastern Eastern europe or into asia where quite frankly a lot of those vehicles don't have um, airbags on the on the the passenger side anyway or it might be a a sensor problem on the bumper or there might be some element to it so essentially copart sits in that transaction of of collating all of the insurance companies and then there's thousands of thousands of used car dealers and parts distributors and there's two massive barriers to entry the first one is that um, it's the Amazon effect of having this flywheel of, of an option, essentially an option house of, of, of buyers and sellers on one side. And that becomes more powerful every year as you've got more product to sell, the customers sort of become more attracted to that. And then the other element is physical where you've got thousands of thousands of beaten up vehicles where you need to store them somewhere and so you've got essentially junkyards sitting on the periphery of major metropolitan cities the ability for you to get a permit for that now is almost impossible um and, and to your point on the qualitative factors the guy that um sort of formed this Business, Willis Johnson. There was a company. There was a book put put together by him called "Junk to Gold." If I remember correctly, and read it some years ago. This this industry started like thirty, or he started to so rolling this industry up some thirty years ago or longer, maybe longer than that. But the, the, the decision he made very early on was to own his own land. Now, modern financial theory, especially as it's taught by all three practitioners, is you shouldn't be um, buying assets where you should be leasing them. Um, and we kind of agree with that. But coming back to the return on invested capital is essentially he's still generating a 25% return on the invested capital, despite owning all of his land. The reason that's important is that um, there's only two industry players in the United States. There's Copart and another company called IAA, which was spun out of CDK some years ago. I'm um, sorry, spun out of car auction service services some years ago. So we've got that bit confused there, but um, essentially there's only two industry players now, and there's Copart and there's IAA. And IAA leases all of its land. It doesn't own it. And what's become apparent over the last few years is that as those land banks become more valuable to the underlying landlord... They're being rezoned as residential and so iaa is finding itself getting kicked out of those very valuable sites and they're trying to relocate but they can't and so it's, um, it's coparts being able to step into the void there and to pick up share it also becomes really important during these uh, big catastrophe uh, catastrophic events such as um, floods and hurricanes etc where you need to service that um, customer base very very rapidly you need um, additional uh, land holdings to, to, to supply the overflow so Copart uh, historically from a cultural point of view has had that mindset of like, let's build a business over decades rather than think about next quarter's EPS numbers um, the reason we were able to buy it cheaply or the the, the bare thesis around this business was essentially um, new cars are increasingly being sold with lane diversion type technology and eventually we're going to have self-driving cars now that's all well and good but there's Some 170 odd million vehicles in the US, um, growing by about 20 million per annum, less than 5% of those company, those cars have that kind of technology involved. So this is going to be a multi-decade kind of change and it's going to happen really, really gradually. So the knee-jerk reaction to this is going to happen tomorrow, we're all screwed from an investment thesis point of view. We'd never sort of bought into that. Um, and at the same time, the management team were buying back. I think they bought back some 15% of the issue capital of the business over 2008, 2009. So they're on your side, buying back stock when, when the shares are on sale. Um, so so from a holistic point of view great returns on capital able to deploy that capital at high rates of return a, a moat which is highly defensible uh, and a management team that's on your t- on your side and deploying capital well uh, ticked all of our boxes mm-hmm.
1: um yeah them actually owning the permits to um, those those yards um, actually reminds me of you know similar companies in the australian space like bunnings where they're actually securing probably the best locations. Um, and you could see, you know, masses uh, failing to, you know, take down Bunnings. And it's really trying to add that extra layer of barrier to entry for new entrants. Um, so I, I noticed that um, in 2009 and 2015 were the only years where Copart actually, where revenue actually went backwards, but it still remained profitable, Um and just shows how resilient the business is, even in the worst of times.
0: Yeah, I mean it's incredibly resilient business, and the things that really drive that company. And there's, there's an argument at the moment that the company's over-owning a little bit. We've actually been trimming the position slightly um, to reflect that. But you know, the, the things that drive the, the returns for the business here are, are twofold. Firstly, it's the um, rate of accidents, so that that's that's driven by people driving, uh, and the second thing is the cost of the assets moving through there. Their options, mm. so the cost of a, a used car. So at the moment, we've got sort of perfect nirvana, which is essentially as the economies are opening up, um, there's more cars on the road, and I think to a degree, people have forgotten how to drive, so the accident rates up a little bit. Um, and at the same time, we've got used car pricing, which has gone through that, the absolute roof. Um, so mm. not not only here in Australia, but especially in the States, because we haven't had new car production on online because of the chip shortages, used cars, inflation has been incredible. So for a business, you know, to, to my point earlier on pricing power, yes, they've got a pricing power on the fees that they generate, but more importantly, they're protected from inflation because they're clipping the ticket on the asset price that they're selling. So as used cars are becoming more expensive, um, their gross profit dollars are improving um, and they don't need the, the same level of SGNA. To service those gross profit dollars the margins are expanding and they're doing incredibly well so yes you're right it's been a resilient business but at the moment they're sort of at a point where they're sort of at nirvana when it comes to when it comes to earning special at the moment
1: yeah i didn't notice that operating margins really excelled over the last decade or so um it's the biggest cost the um guard um operating costs
0: uh, there's a combination of things. So you've got yard operating costs, you've got um, sort of the sg that goes into sort of running the auction facilities. You've got towing costs, which is a big one. Um, mm-hmm. So they, 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 which is um, less so for Copart in the last quarter, but reading through IAA's transcripts, uh, that really dinged their margins because they couldn't find ways to offset it. Um, to a lesser extent for Copart because they own a portion of their own towing fleet, but that's a big cost. Um, but you know, these auction type businesses generate pretty rude margins. Um, once you get to scale and you're, you know, essentially Mm. you and maybe one other competitor, the only game in town, um, they're pretty capital light businesses, even though they own their own land banks, um, they don't don't need too much else in the way of CapEx. Um, you know, they, they get to pretty attractive margins over time, which is the case for Copart. Do you think,
1: um, the the disciplined cost management by um it's founder led as well so do you think that played a big hand in um in managing and managing costs
0: definitely i mean founders tend to keep a pretty close eye on the on the bottom line because then they the, the bulk of how they get paid is through dividends right so usually there's a pretty close alignment there now the true founder of this business has stepped back a little bit and it's a second second generation of uh of family that's kind of running the, the show now there's there's been a little bit of an introduction to call it um professional management so guys that have stepped into ceo and cfo roles that are outside of the family sphere and at the margin there's a little bit of sort of stock-based comp creeping in and a few other elements that um you know a bit more sort of wall street like but by and large this is one of the cleanest p l's we've got across the portfolio it's just um a business where they are you know um for their established operations are run incredibly efficiently, but that's also combined with an appetite to continue to invest in the future. So, to give you an idea, they've recently expanded into Germany uh, and they're trying to recreate the US experience into a, a market which is operated traditionally very, very differently. So, it's not a, a business that is afraid to invest, it's just mm-hmm. that they do so with um, sort of a mindset of how do we generate a fantastic Roik out of this business in years five, six, and seven.
1: So would you spend time trying to understand how um, I guess the stakeholders in Germany or the industry operates in that space? And
0: yes, and there's some nuances there for that industry. So it's a little bit different from the states um, where, if you're involved in an accident, your responsibility is the vehicle that owner is then transferred to the insurance company, and and co-part within that transaction doesn't actually take title of the vehicle they just act as an agent sitting between the insurance company and the end buyer and they essentially Move through the auction facility without um, sort of taking title of that vehicle. It's a bit different in Germany. It sounds like a pretty antiquated and inefficient system, insofar as the insurance company will push it on to the owner of the vehicle to actually find a way to dispose of that vehicle. Um, and so it's up to them to, um, you know, to step through that process and uh, um, you know, retain title of that vehicle, etc. etc. Now, Copart has um, taken a a bit of a different view where they're essentially buying that vehicle from the um, owner of the the damaged car and they're taking title of it. Um, And the first step there is to increase volumes. So the first Mm -hmm. step of trying to develop a network effect is making sure that you've got the the um the sellers of of goods on one side before you sort of attract the buyers on the other and and that's the first step at the same time they're uh, making headway in actually changing the way in which the industry works um and so moving the model more to the us um, over time so that's the big opportunity and we're not kidding ourselves that that's a 12 to 18 month journey but if they get it right they're the only ones doing it so um you're right. We do spend a lot of time trying to understand the nuances of that German market and how probable that is.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's an excellent example. Very interesting company. Um, so, And in terms of just flipping it, um, flipping the first one, is, were there any investments or businesses where um, it was high quality, uh, met all the marks in your checklist, but it was just too expensive? How did you go about you know, grappling the valuation piece um, Yeah,
0: Yeah, so there's, there's plenty of those and we, we generally don't buy businesses that are too expensive, um, but there's a good example of a company that we've done all the work on and we're just waiting for a price to come back into our hitting zone. Is a company called Nemechek based in Germany. So a um, brief description of what the business does is essentially trying to digitise the, the building process. So um, what architects used to draw on schematics, they sort of digitize that CAD-CAN process and then hand it onto the builders. And instead of people walk around with clipboards, now everyone's got um, an iPad or a digitized version of how that plan is supposed to come together. And eventually it's uh, the building's handed off onto the maintenance um, crew. And so never check managed that process from the start to, to the finish. What we really liked about the company is the cultural side. So uh, Autodesk in the US would be very close Um, comparative business to uh, to NeverCheck. Uh, But a little bit different insofar as Autodesk very much pulling the pricing lever, which we we spoke about earlier. We prefer companies that um, leave their pricing power unchecked as much as they can, and they're getting invited back to sort of sell more software. Um, NeverCheck would definitely have that sort of mindset. And then the second thing um, is that um, Autodesk uh, pay their staff fairly egregiously in our in our view in sort of stock-based compensation. So to give you an idea, uh, about 10% of their revenues now goes to stock-based comp and 35% of their cash flows go back to buying back stock on the market to keep their diluted share count flat. Uh-huh. Uh, so that is a huge hurdle every year to overcome. Nemechek doesn't pay a dime in stock-based comp, but they still yeah. get, they, they pay their people really well. They pay them in cash yeah. uh, and they still get fantastic outcomes. Now, um, business with that, those sort of attributes don't come cheap. Um, and so we just get to know the business really well. Um, we went to Germany, met with their m team, met with their management team, um, met with a um, couple of their um, customers, et cetera. And so during the depths of COVID, when everyone's convinced the world was um, ending and no one was ever going to build a, a building again, we had an opportunity to buy that business, which was trading on 60 times earnings, Um, for 30 times earnings. And so we went pretty hard at at buying that from day one. So really we're just waiting for these opportunities where every once in a while, these really expensive businesses become cheap enough for us to to buy them. Um, And then we separate the sell decision between our three buckets. So we've got high quality growth, stable compounders, and low risk turnarounds. professional investors as well as amateurs suffer from disposition effect which is selling your best ideas too early and adding to your losers too readily where we suffer from that the most is in our high quality growth bucket so we we're just more patient in the speed in which we sell those down and the check essentially doubled um, in, the, in the ensuing 12 months and so we took out a portion of the capital we've been trimming it ever since and we just sold our last one percent of that business in December of 2021 at 60 times earnings again. So that gives you a bit of an example of sort of our discipline around pricing and doing the work up front so that you can buy with confidence.
1: Having gone through so many companies like that the high quality growth bucket, um, is it does it get easier for you do, to frame a hard number or ratio, price to earnings, um, or the shorthand that you use? um to understand whether it's a sell decision
0: um it's, it's very clear for businesses that have earnings um so we, we have a strong preference for companies that actually generate a net profit after tax um okay. i think i'm stealing a quote here from someone but essentially uh, it was terry smith i think he said in his last letter that a lot of the time you're um you're investing in a, a business plan rather than a business in, in the software as a service world where they're companies where you're pricing on, on um price to sales or EV to sales or even gross profit to to growth rates or all sorts of weird and quirky ways of valuing businesses in that, in that space. But what, what becomes difficult is if the stock price is down 50%, what metric are you looking for to get confident that that's the right price? And, and that's really the difficulty because you're making so many assumptions in the year 10 to, um, to sort of value the business, that it, it becomes quite esoteric. So, you know, you're saying, well, revenue number has to compound at 25% per annum. They've probably outgrown their total addressable market at that point. Um, and then you, you have to subtract, you know, what do you think looks like a reasonable R&D number? So they're spending 50% of their dollars on R&D does that get back to a market average of 20%? Um, Their marketing and sales, which they're plowing all of their free cash flow back into marketing and sales. Does that moderate over time or does does their churn rate start to pick up? So you start getting an assumption on assumption on assumption Mm -hmm. and it becomes really difficult to really pin down um, confidence over that sort of long-term outlook. Whereas if you've got a company that's generating a net profit after tax, you have a lot more sort of, um, accuracy in what you think that number is going to be in years three, three to five, um, and so we skew towards a more profitable end of the um, of the software market.
1: Mm. I noticed the the growth rates for check was actually quite um, quite erratic. Um, so you try and I guess you try and uh, apply a normalised rate of growth through understanding the historical financials
0: yeah and they've made a few acquisitions over time as well which has muddied the waters there from a uh, organic first acquired revenue um, number now what we've been quite impressed by with that management team is that they their m a guys are very disciplined in what they're prepared to pay for businesses so they haven't been involved in the m a freight frenzy that's gone on over the last couple of years and they've actually invested in um, earlier stage businesses where um, they think they can add some value, but they're not paying huge multiples. So they've sort of moved from buying established businesses where they used to pick them up on you know, mid 20s kind of PE multiples They've sort of very rapidly moved to a multiple of revenue. And they said, We're not, we can't generate a return from that. But where we think we can generate a return is in this interesting. Business which a few uni students have put together, and they've got an interesting technology, no in way to scale it. Um, let's let's start to invest there. Um, so that that's on the M&A side. The business is becoming more predictable from a revenue growth point of view now. So they've kind of bedded down those acquisitions and. Um, pretty formulaic in the way that they go to market. And it's about geography expansion here. So they're m- moving some of the European IP into the States and some of their States um, IP, which they've acquired over the last few years into, into Europe. So that's reasonably formulaic. And then the margin expansion that's coming through, it's actually coming through faster than we expected, to be honest. Um, so the last result they actually put out last night, I think they had 300 basis points of EBIT margin expansion, which is pretty impressive, in a market where um employee costs especially in tech markets rapidly coming under some pressure so um it, it's it's a reasonably predictable business these days it's
1: definitely a two high quality companies there um so the last one um all of them can't be great but um you definitely have one uh, bad investment that you um learn a lot from um
0: yeah, so we make mistakes. Everyone sort of makes errors so over time. We try to keep them as, as um, try to reduce the impact of those as much as possible. So one of, one of the, sort of lifting the kimono here a little bit on sort of how we do position sizing. When we buy a new company, we typically start at 1%. Um, and then we sort of average into it over time as we get to know it over some quarters. There's nothing that sharpens your mind like having some capital at work. Even if you followed a company for multiple quarters or even some years, as soon as you put some money to work, there's, there's something about it that sharpens your mind. You read the transcripts a little bit more attention. You, a bit more paranoid about what's going on in the market so um, typically our mistakes have been sort of sub two percent in the portfolio two and two and a half percent and we actually haven't made an error on an annualized basis for anything that's in a full position so anything over four percent touch wood at the moment we're error free Um, but we do make errors and one of the errors we made was a business called nielsen Um, so it was in our turnaround bucket Um, it's a business been around for a long time uh, they they measure audiences from all the way through from analog, to, so outboard um, billboards to radio to internet um, traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Now, they've got two sides of the business. They've got what's called the watch side of the business, which is um, the digital um, business measuring audiences, and then they've got the buy side of the business, which is the old can-counting market share business for fast-moving consumer goods. The bear cases we understood it was on the watch side of the business where the narrative at the time was that Google and Facebook and uh, social media platforms etc. could all be trusted to um, deliver their data to um, media buyers in a trustworthy way where where the, the audiences were measured correctly. You know we were very doubtful of that and um, that thesis actually proven to be correct in favour of Fairlight where. Nielsen definitely had a, a, a part to play, making sure that all the players on the on the field were were adhering to the rules. But what we got wrong was on the on the buy side of the business, where essentially um, all the data used to be literally counted by Nielsen. Now they've got direct data feeds into uh, Walmart and other um, businesses where they can measure market share data pretty well. Um, the second derivative of that business was actually consulting. So. Um, using that data and going into a Heinz or a Campbell soup or wherever it might've been and helping them with their pricing decisions. So if you put your prices up by 10% here, you expect to lose market share of why. Uh, if you do a sort of coupon um, program, what does that look like? We didn't understand the extent to which those consultants were driving the returns of that business. And so when um, the private equity guys started coming through the fast moving consumer goods um, businesses, then, the first guys to go were the Nielsen consultants. They were like, well, we can cut some fat here by doing this analysis work in-house. We really didn't appreciate the extent to which the, those consultants were literally thousands of them in the market. So we, we we ended up speaking to sort of second tier, third tiers of management, some guys that had left to really understand the business. And it became clear to us that the bottom was nowhere near in sight. We sold that business, I think, at a 40% loss. But um. No, there were some lessons there from uh, for us but that was one that we, uh, we clearly got wrong
1: mm. It's a very interesting uh, case study um, and it's it's a it's a business that reminds me of the power of uh, disruption um, but also reflecting on the financials um, you could notice that there was a sizable um, trend of selling expenses uh, going up so mm. I think that was management trying to salvage um, what it had in the business and um, trying to pivot um, at that point in time, but it, it becomes hard when you have industri- industry structural uh, headwinds.
0: That's right. I think you're becoming more and more reliant on feet on the street to deliver a service to your business rather than the scalable digital side, which is, which is a bit of an issue. Now, I think that part of the thesis there was their cost base was clearly bloated. Um, and there was actually a takeover offer um, from Elliott Financial during the week, which was rejected. Um, um, but I would I'd, I'd, I'd hazard a guess that that's not the end of the story there. That that's clearly a business that could benefit from some a new set of eyes externally. But we, given the structural changes there, we weren't prepared to hang around for it. But um, there's some fat in that business that can be, I think, somewhat whittled away over time. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Um, your thorough knowledge of these companies and businesses is is really impressive, and I think um, um, I think the disclosure requirements of, I guess, global companies can be uh, much better than the ASX listed companies. Um, So just going through piles and piles of um, direct sources of information, like the 10k reports. um, What's your stance on um, the disclosure requirements of um, different countries compared to Australia?
0: Yeah, we've got a pretty high hurdle there. So um, one of the reasons we only invest in developed um, markets is that essentially the disclosure requirements for emerging markets are pretty scant. And, you know, often those numbers end up in people's inboxes before they do public markets. So, you know, if you're investing in emerging markets, you make great money there. And we, our advice would be to use a local manager, someone that understands the political dynamics and even the family dynamics of, of those markets. Um but I, I think in in developed markets the disclosure is reasonably good. Um, even in Australia, I, I don't find it to be terrible. Um, you know, you'd always like a little bit more information uh, rather than less. Um, but but one of the filters that we've got, and it doesn't really matter what market it is, if you open an annual report and it's over and above what's required, if the management team is making an effort to communicate what's important about the business, it really doesn't matter where they're based or what the disclosure requirements are. Like there's a there's a sense here that these guys are holding themselves accountable. They really want you to understand what's going on in the business. They're making the metrics really easy to understand. They're showing you what they're measuring. Um, you know, these these things, it doesn't really matter if it's uh, based in, in the UK or, or Switzerland or Australia or the US, it's really about the culture and the, of, of the way that these guys are. Uh, explaining their business that's important to us rather than the level of disclosure that's required by the SEC or whoever the government body may be. It's a
1: matter of quality over quantity, um, which is right in line with your approach at feel like Asset Management. 100%. Um, and something that's really important um, to a lot of investors and it's something that you've touched upon in your previous podcasts and interviews is um, the psychological mindset. And we had a chat last week. Um, you emphasized that it's, it's been a crucial um, element and aspect of your development and evolution as, a, as an investor. Could you go through the key um, traits that you think um, is probably the most important for an investor?
0: yeah i mean you can sort of regurgitate all the textbook ones here and, and you know, the the list of, of of traits that you need to learn for a cfa or a or a, or a university degree etc but the, the longer i do this the more i realize it's really in the nuances of people's personalities and human um, foibles if you like that where the where the value lies so even to the extent of can you create an environment where um people are happy to debate an idea with the spirit of getting to the right answer rather than proving yourself right is like critically important so you know I don't think that's written in any textbook anywhere but that's going to be you know going to be 90% of the way there if you can if you can create an environment where people are conscious of their own bias to try and prove a point rather than get to the right answer now I'm definitely not um, I'm not perfect there myself no one is but that is one of the things that we've worked really hard on at Fairlight to, to develop. The second one is um, not having a culture of um, retribution on making errors. Um, so if we've made a mistake, how do we create an environment that allows people to recognize that we've made a mistake and move on quickly? Um, so that's a very that sort of comes into use a strong cell discipline. Um, that's really critical as well so you know, people don't feel like they need to dig their heels on, in and, and, and have their KPI set up on getting a stock into the, into the um, portfolio and trying to hang on to it as long as possible. Like it might even be the next week that you're like, oh, we've done all this work, we've, we've, we've bought the business, um, we own some shares here. Oh, geez, I didn't look at that sort of short report that I've just discovered and there's a bit of a quirk in the accounting here that we'll, rather than being embarrassed about telling the team about that, you're like, We'll send it around and we'll have a chat about it at the next research meeting. If it's something that's thesis busting, we'll sell that, and we'll just move on to the next idea. So it's it's about creating an environment where people are confident to tell you what they think um, and making it as least competitive combative as possible without starting to enter into groupthink. Um, and so that's where the balance becomes difficult because you want to have an um, affable place to work but also one which challenges people's thinking. Um, so... I guess it's that combination between um, creating the environment, but also being mindful of all. Of the, we've got a list of ten or fifteen um, heuristics that we're trying to keep front of mind. Um, you know, com- combining those elements that you know really come together to to getting to a, a good decision, rather than you know, getting stuck in the in the details of of, um, of, of the sort of calculation of it, of an outcome, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think um, the comment about not trying to, well, implementing steps or incentive structures that doesn't encourage um, people to get overly excited and want to introduce a new idea. But actually, I think what you're saying um, is reflective of a process that encourages analysts to become better investors and make better decisions and learn from their mistakes.
0: Yeah, that's right. And also keeping the structure as flat as possible. So um, some of the terrible incentives I've seen over the years is where you start building things like custom benchmarks for people to compare their results against. And so you might have, you know, you're covering, you're responsible for the uh, the, the media sector. And so you have this custom benchmark and you're expected to get stocks into the portfolio and you Need to outperform that that benchmark. Um, it might be the case that at the moment, you know, media is not the great, greatest place to invest. Uh, and so, what we're trying to encourage at Fairlight is to take a portfolio view and say, "Well, my stocks probably aren't looking as attractive as my teammates. Um, well, that actually looks like a pretty interesting idea. We're happy to sort of put more capital behind that for now." And you know the opportunity sets probably not there for my own businesses at the moment. Let's just take a step back and, and be happy to sort of cheer someone else's stocks on for a while. That's, mm-hmm. that's really important. Um, so not having incentive linked to short-term performance is really important. Um, you know, we're all shareholders in the business, so we can think long-term which is really handy, um, mm-hmm. which is, which is fantastic. Um, and then just encouraging people to be generalists rather than specialists. Um, so, you learn more across industries than you do going super deep a lot of the time there's, there's more commonality between businesses and then sort of um, you, you'd appreciate all the time so we make sure that people are very broad in the way that they look at businesses and the opportunity sets they look at as well which um gets you away from the um kidding yourself that minutia is going to be the answer to, to most investment outcomes mm.
1: So it seems like it would take a lot of qualitative assessments when you provide feedback to the rest of the team. So it's it's a matter of um, taking notes and and noting down key things that you've seen in their development um, over time. That's right, and and
0: also subjecting yourself to a three hundred and sixty degree review from the guys as well, right? Like you know, I think there's a, always a, a temptation as you know the perceived leader of a group to be pushing your views down amongst the team and telling people how they can improve. But you, you sort of asked me, you know, who have been the biggest influences on my investing career? There's three that have sort of been more senior than me, if you like, but I learn as much from Say, and Will these days and I do from those guys. Um, you know, they've got fantastic insights into, a, into the businesses. And so to think that I can, you know, sort of have an assessment of how they're doing professionally without subjecting myself to the same process, I think it's, um, it's pretty questionable. So, yes, I provide feedback to the guys on a daily basis. We don't have formal end-of-year reviews. I think they're quite false. We try and, I try and provide um, sort of daily or at least weekly kind of thoughts around how we're going or you know, where some heuristics are trying to start to creep in. But at the end of every year, I subject myself to a 360 review and I ask the guys to be super honest about that, about how I'm going and what I can do to help them make their lives easier and and the assessment of businesses simpler and resourcing that we require and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a combination of both those things and I think those conversations are pretty healthy.
1: Yeah, when we caught up, you mentioned how do you spend a lot of time working on building uh, mental flexibility into your process. Could you expand that for our our listeners?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of this stuff is self-reflection, right? Like you're trying to pick up on your own biases and your own um, your own shortcomings and blind spots and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes that can be pointed out to you externally, which is fantastic. Um, you know, you can have people that are asking the right questions, et cetera. But all the time it's self-assessment, like where where's my ego starting to, to creep in here? Am I starting to favour my own ideas over someone else's? Am I starting to sort of ask um, a level of work from others that i'm not prepared to do myself um am i digging in on an idea because i'm trying to be right rather than get to the right answer um is there an element here that i could be incorrect to in spaces that um that i haven't probed before and, and that's a that's a process of extreme um uh, self-honesty um which is not an easy thing to do now i think that most uh, a lot of investors these days have recognised the importance of things like meditation in, in their processes. And I, I certainly do a lot of that Have over the years, over the last sort of decade or so, developed a pretty rigorous daily process of, of a, an hour a day of, of, of walking through that process. And that, that allows you to kind of reset and really look at your mental, um, recurring mental thoughts and um, elements where you maybe not as balanced as you could be um and uh, sitting down doing that for an hour every day in a very disciplined way is definitely helped on the mental flexibility side so Mm. uh, to the extent that you can kind of destroy your ego on a daily basis i think that's a pretty healthy thing as well Mm.
1: is there anything outside of work other than meditation that you do to um keep fresh and um stay you know uh, mentally stimulated
0: yeah, I mean, it used to be a lot more. i have got just i have got a, I've just, I've got a one-month-old at home at the moment, and a, and a two-year-old. So a lot of my time, time spent um, making mashed potatoes, et cetera. But um, I, I did a lot. I've done a lot of surfing over the years, and a lot of uh, climbing. Um, so I spent a, a good stint down in Patagonia and Chile, um, sort of going on a climbing twelve months of sort of working my way through those regions and, and surfing and climbing, which is fantastic. My early years were spent skiing, so in, in between the uh, university holidays, I used to save enough money to get myself into a, uh, a plane ticket over to Europe or the States and, and take whatever job I could get there for three months and, and sort of work in those resorts and um, get paid seven bucks an hour and have the time of your life, you know, doing it. So, you know, they were definitely passions of mine. These days it's more about if I can get out for a run along Manly Beach for <laughs> half an hour a day then that's enough to sort of reset the mind and and make sure that you're getting the blood pumping and all that sort of stuff but i think just keeping active and and balanced Mm -hmm. and making sure you're reminding yourself that um you know finance is important but it's not the all and be all in the world and um, i think that sort of stops you from falling into the pitfalls of um you know what happens to a lot of people out in our industry which is burnout because you need to be doing this for 10 to 15 years consistently um, to Mm -hmm. generate good returns for investors make sure that you don't burn out halfway through that process
1: Hmm. I think surfing is a, an, another quick um, activity that you could potentially fit into your um, hectic schedule. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so for an aspirational analyst um, who just reflecting on your overall uh, time and your process, it's a very measured approach which has been built from um um, comprehensive experience and um, in-depth research it's a evidence-based approach what's what's what would your piece of advice be for someone who's starting out in that um in that field
0: um it would just be to read widely um so university will get you or whatever course you might do will give you the grounding you need to understand things from a technical perspective uh but the longer i do this the more i realize that less important than you think so it's probably 10 percent of your university work that you'll actually use on a recurring basis i think it, all of us have had the experience of rote learning a whole bunch of stuff for an exam and then forgetting it the day afterwards so it's really about you know if you can get your hands on you know, some of the greats uh, investors over the years they've all read they've all written memoirs read them all um and then you know people that have achieved fantastic things in their lives um, whether it's historical figures or sports people, um, or coaches. Um, uh, it's so always a good one. I, I think you hands on those and read those as much as possible. Um, yeah, I think read as much as, as, as humanly can widely, and then, you know, start getting stuck into the annual reports, unless you want to be mm. a quant analyst, which is quite different. If you want to be a fundamental analyst, which is what we do, mm. um, put as much structure as you can behind things, but there's no replacement for just reading as much as you can about businesses and understanding them, um, from the ground up. So, um, replacement for the good old 10k unfortunately
1: yeah so were there any moments when you were speaking to your peers throughout your time and then they were saying oh i was doing this and it saved me a lot of time to develop my career as a as an analyst and you're like
0: oh i wish i had done that (laughs) (laughs) um I don't think so. I mean, um, there's some great fund managers and analysts out there and they all do things a little bit differently. But I, I guess I was just so bloody fortunate and I'm so grateful for the path that I've had. Um, three fantastic mentors and now a team that are incredible. oh um, don't get me wrong, there's, there's things we can improve and do better and we're always on the outlook for that. But I think that, you know, I think the reason that we've managed to get ourselves to a highly recommended rating from Zenith and recommended from Lonsec so quickly as a business is that um, – we looked at what the benchmark was and we just tried to beat it across every element of our business. And so, um, there's the experiences that you get along the way that allow you to do that. Um, and so I think that the grounding that I've had and the work that we've all done collectively as a team to get to this point, I think is a pretty strong Testament to sort of, you know, I guess the, the, the backgrounds that we've had. So I'm just trying to think if there's any sort of one individual, um, I guess the, the one thing I could have done a little earlier was start my own business a bit earlier, but that, that's kind of that's kind of a circumstance thing, right? You, you have these opportunities and they're a point in time. You can't really force those things. So um, if I had d- done it five years earlier, I would have I would have been happy to do that, but the, the opportunity wasn't there, but not really easy answer, I don't think, Raymond.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you've emphasized emphasized the importance of people, um, played a huge role in your life. That leads to my um, last question I asked all my guests. Um, so, out of everyone um, in your career and your life, who's been the most influential um, person um, on your life as a professional investor and as a person? I
0: can separate those two, um, but, but as a professional investor, Um, and within the professional sphere um, as a person would be David Wannes for sure. So um, the influence we had over my best career early on, um, you know, can't be understated. You have these people that really happy to sort of fly the flag for you. And David, I'm very fortunately, I'm very fortunate that he, both on a professional level and making sure that I was sort of steered in the right direction from a career perspective, um, I've got a huge debt of gratitude. And we speak regularly and catch up, you know, pretty much on a weekly basis still these days. Uh, on a personal basis, I can't go past my wife who um, backed me or asked to start a business. Um, so I'm very grateful to her and her skill set. So she's got a marketing background in in um, funds management. Have worked for BT. Uh, for some time um, and the sort of level that she works has definitely lifted the bar for, you know, the group for Fairlight. You know, if you look at our website, the way that we market and put our material together and um, all the information that we sort of gather and, and, and put out there, that you know, that's got her fingerprints all over it. So you know, from a personal point of view, not only to going through life together but also developing professionally, um, she's been a, a massive impact as well.
1: Yeah, having read... Um... The book Richer, Wiser, Happier. Um, that documents um all the great investors. Uh, you, you could tell that it's it's so important and crucial to have um strong relationships and strong support. And I think um your wife does definitely provide that. Yeah, incredibly
0: <laughs> grateful. Incredibly grateful.
1: <laughs> um it was an absolute joy to have you on the Australian investors podcast. Um I think this uh, episode is filled with so many practical examples um, and key takeaways for investors. I think um, the name of your fund is reflective of the way you approach investing, um, having a, a t- independent um, frame of mind and also having an optimistic uh, view on the world and really using an evidence-based approach. So I think um Really appreciate you coming on to the Australian Investors Podcast, and I'm sure the Australian investing community uh, will be forever grateful for you for you to share all your lessons and wisdom.
0: Oh, that's very generous of you, and, and thanks very much for having me on the uh, on the program. And if you can do it again in the future, I'll be delighted to. Hmm.
1: Thanks, Nick. And for anyone to um, contact you or uh, find more information about your your fund, um, what's the best uh, contact?
0: Um, you can jump on our website. There's a hello at uh, fairlightam.com.au. Uh, uh, Want to come on there and just jump on there and um, one of the team will, will get back to you. Or Alternatively, um, there's a the, there's an opportunity to follow us on for our monthly distribution. Jump on that and we'll be very happy to send you our monthly uh, commentary as well.
1: I'll definitely be tuning in to your monthly updates and um, good luck with the rest of your investing career and your personal life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Nick.
1: Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to part two of my chat with Nick Cregan. After listening to Nick, I was particularly impressed with the depth of research he and his team undertake. The chat also reminded me of the importance of applying a Disciplined, but also an efficient investing in process. The benefits of thinking independently to arrive at the right answer and how people play an integral role in not just investing, but in all facets of life. If you want to check out this episode in full or other episodes like this one, head to the Rats YouTube channel.